This recording is a personal reading of Christianity Through the Centuries, A History of the Christian Church by Earl E. Carnes. This is a personal reading that is not for monetary gain, and I pray that it is going to be an encouragement to you as a Christian as you see a survey of the important people and events throughout church history. We pick up in chapter 6 in this recording. The spread of Christianity in the empire to 100 AD. Chapter 6. With the bishops and the deacons. The church exists on two levels. On one level, it is an eternal, invisible, biblical organism that is welded into one body by the Holy Spirit. On the other hand, it is the temporal, historical, visible, human, institutional organization. The first is the end, and the second is the means. The development of the church as an organization was left to the apostles to work out under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Any large corporate body must of necessity have leadership, and as it grows, the division of functions and consequent sub-specializations of leadership must come if it is to function effectively. A liturgy to guide the worship of the church is in orderly fashion. 1 Corinthians 14.40 Is another logical outcome of the growth of the church as an organization. The eventual aim of the church as a worshiping organism is the achievement of quality of life. The, thus, the Christian is part of an organism and of an organization. Roman numeral one, the government of the church. The origin of church polity is to be credited to Christ because he chose the apostles who were to be the leaders of the infant church. The apostles took the initiative in the development of other offices in the church when they were so directed by the Holy Spirit. This does not by any means imply a pyramidal hierarchy, such as the Roman Catholic Church has developed, because the new officials were to be chosen by the people, ordained by the apostles, and have special spiritual qualifications that involve leadership by the Holy Spirit. Thus, there was an inward call by the Holy Spirit to the office, an external call by the democratic vote of the church, and the ordaining of to office by the apostles. There was to be no special class of priests set apart to minister a sacerdotal system of salvation because both the officials and the members of the church were spiritual priests with the right to direct access to direct access to God through Christ, Ephesians chapter two, verse eighteen. These officials may be divided into two classes. The charismatic officials, Greek charisma means gift, were chosen by Christ and endowed with special spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, as well as Ephesians 4, 11 through 12. Their function was primarily inspirational. The administrative officials constituted the second class. Their functions were mainly administrative. Although, after the death of the apostles, the elders took over many spiritual responsibilities, these officials were chosen by the congregation after prayer for the guidance of the Holy Spirit and appointed 
by the Apostles. Subheading A. Charismatic Officials. These men, whose main responsibilities were the guiding of the truth of the gospel and its initial proclamation, were specially selected by Christ through the Holy Spirit to exercise leadership within the church. There were four or five such offices designated by Paul, apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and or teachers, and many think that the pastor and teacher may be designations for the same office. The apostles were men who had been witnesses to Christ's life, death, and particularly his resurrection. Acts chapter 1, verse 22, cross-reference, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1, as well as 1 Corinthians 15, verse 8. And who had been personally called by Christ? Paul based his, uh, his apostleship on a direct call from the living Christ. These men, who were the first officials of the early church, had combined in their work all the functions later carried on by various officials when the apostles were unable to take care of the needs of the rapidly expanding early church. Peter is the dominant figure among the apostles in the first twelve chapters of Luke's record of the history of the early church. Not only did he make the first official proclamation to the Jews in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, but he also first introduced the gospel among the Gentiles by his preaching to the household of Cornelius. Despite the leadership, this leadership, nothing of the hierarchical, authoritarian concept of the medieval Roman church is to be seen in the New Testament account after Peter's death. Despite the leadership, nothing of the hierarchical authoritarian concept of the medieval Roman Catholic Church is to be seen in the New Testament account of his activities. Traditional dating from the time from the early church fixes Rome as the place of Peter's death. One rather interesting tradition describes Peter's escaping from prison in Rome and flight from the city. Confronted by Christ, Peter asked him where he was going. Peter asked him where he was going. Christ replied that he was going to Rome to be crucified again. Smitten with remorse, Peter hastened back to the city where he was crucified at his own request. According to one tradition, with his head down because he did not feel worthy to die in the same manner or way his Lord had died. James, the son of Zebedee, was present at the Transfiguration and in Gethsemane. He was the first of the twelve to be martyred being beheaded by Herod Agrippa I in 44. The Spanish, consider, the Spanish consider him their patron saint. James, the brother of Christ, Galatians chapter 1, verse 19, ranked next to Peter as the leader of the church in Jerusalem. His prominence in the church is clearly evident from his position of leadership at the Jerusalem Council. While closer to the legalism of Judaism than most of the leaders of the early church, early Jerusalem church, he occupied a mediatorial position between Jewish and Gentile Christians at the Jerusalem Council. He had such a desire for holiness and a devout life of prayer that, according to tradition, his knees became calloused like those of a camel because of his constant kneeling. He was martyred by being clubbed to death after he had been thrown down from the pinnacle of the temple. All the while, he uttered words of forgiveness, similar to those used by Stephen. He was not one of the twelve. John is ranked, along with Peter, as a leader in the early church. 
Tradition associates his later labors with the city of Ephesus. He was banished by Domitian to the island of Patmos, a solitary barren rock island off the west coast of Asia Minor. Here he wrote the book of Revelation. After the death of Domitian, he was allowed to return to Ephesus, where he remained, ministering to the churches of Asia until his death at an advanced age. His gospel, his three epistles, and Revelation are a part of a rich part of the liturgy, the literary heritage of the church in the New Testament. Peter's brother Andrew preached in sections of the Near East and Scythia. According to later tradition, he was crucified on an X-shaped cross, the form of the form of cross that has since been known by his name. Little is known of Philip. Later's, Philip's later life, except that he most likely died a natural death at Heropolis after the destruction of Jerusalem. Nothing is known of the later labors of and death of James the Less, the son of Alphaeus. Tradition concerning Thaddeus assigned his labors to Persia, where he was martyred. Matthias, who took the place of Judas, labored in Ethiopia and was then there martyred, according to the to one account. Simon Zealots was also martyred by crucifixion. Tradition is not clear concerning the mode of martyrdom of Bartholomew, but his name is linked with the proclamation of the gospel in India by one tradition. Matthew was supposed to have also labored in Ethiopia. The name of the most skeptical of the disciples, Thomas, is associated with labor in Parthia, but most accounts link him with the southwestern Malabar coast of India. The silence of the New Testament and even tradition concerning these men is remarkable when compared with the later medieval tendency to glorify the death of the notable men and women of the church. Prophets appeared to be among the more influential leaders of the New Testament church. They exercised the function of forth-telling or preaching the gospel, Acts 13.1 and 15.32, as well as foretelling or predicting the future. Agabus is credited with having successfully predicted a coming famine and Paul's imprisonment at the hands of the Jews, Acts 11.28, through 14 Evidently, the early church was plagued with many who falsely pretended to be prophets because the Didache gives clear instruction as to how to distinguish the false prophet from the genuine prophet. 10, 7, 11, 7 through 12. Philip exercised the gift of evangelism, Acts 21, 8. But little is known of this office and its specific functions. Perhaps it had special reference to work of the itinerant missionary, whose main task was to proclaim the gospel in new, hitherto untouched areas. There is also the problem concerning whether the separate office, offices of pastor and teacher existed in two persons, or were simply designations for two functions that one man specially gifted by God was to fill. The New Testament is less obscure concerning the test of a genuine teacher. No one who denied the personal advent of Christ into the world as man in human flesh could be a true teacher, according to John. Second John chapter one. Second John, excuse me, chapter one, verses one through eleven. The character of a true teacher is pointed out in the Dedeki eleven verses one and two. Subheading B. Administrative officials. All the officials who have been discussed were specially appointed to their offices by God rather than man. 
And there was another class of officials who were democratically chosen, quote, with the consent of the whole church, end quote. Their task was to carry out governmental functions within the given church. The apostles laid down their qualifications and put them in office after their selection by the congregation. Unlike the apostles and other charismatic officials, these men, and in some cases women, worked and exercised their authority in the local church or, or congregation rather than in the church of Christ as a whole. These offices grew by division of function and specialization as necessity dictated aid to the overworked apostles faced with the problem of a growing church. Perhaps the example of the synagogue with its elders who presided over local affairs was a factor in the creation of these offices. The office of the elder, or presbyter, ranked highest in the local congregation. Those who hold to a threefold organization in the church contend that the names elder, presbyteros, and bishop, episcopos, or are not synonymous terms, but represent the separate offices of bishop and presbyter. The New Testament, however, is quite clear in its association of these two names with the same office, Acts twenty seventeen twenty eight Philippians 1, 1, Titus 1, 5, and 7. The growth of the office of the monarchical bishop did not come until after the end of the apostolic age in the second century. The qualifications of an elder are clearly outlined at least twice in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7, and Titus 5, 1, 5 through 9. Elders must be men of good reputation among the members of the church and outs- outsiders. Conduct of public worship seems to have been one of their main functions. 1 Timothy 5.17, Titus 1-9, along with the responsibility for the good government and orderly discipline of the church. The deacons had a subordinate position to the elder, elders, but those who filled the office faced the same rigid qualifications for office that the elders had to meet, Acts 6.3 and 1 Timothy 3.8-13. The procedure for democratic election was also prescribed by the apostles in Jerusalem, Acts 6, 3, through 3 and 5. The, dis- the dispensing of charity by the church was the major task of the deacons. Later, they aided the elders by giving the elements of the communion to the people. Stephen and Philip were the most prominent in Acts 6 through 8. Women seem to have been admitted to this office in apostolic times. For Paul mentioned Phoebe, a, the deaconess, with approval, Romans 16, 1. The daughters of Philip, the evangelist, also fulfilled the functions of a prophet, Acts 21.9. But Paul was specific in his assertion that women could not be teachers in the church, 1 Corinthians 14.34 and 1 Timothy 2.12. The emergence of a set of officials for the congregation and the definition of their qualifications and duties were completed by the end of the first century. With salvation by faith in Christ as, the, as its gospel, a growing literature written by the apostles, and a form of organization to meet its needs, Christianity grew rapidly in the late 1st and early 2nd centuries. The question of an orderly form of worship seems to have been a matter of some concern from the time of the apostles. Paul had to urge the Corinthian church to conduct its worship in an orderly, dignified manner. 1 Corinthians 14.40 Christ earlier had stated the essence of true worship when he declared that because God was... Spirit, true worship, was a matter of the Spirit, John 4, 24. 
Roman numeral two, the worship of the early church. Worship is really the upward reach of the human spirit through religious exercises that bring the soul into the presence of God. The early Christians did not think of a church as a place of worship according to the common usage of the word today. A church signified a body of people in personal relationship with Christ. Such a group met in homes, Acts chapter 12, 12, Romans chapter 16, verse 5, Colossians 4, 15, Philemon, verses 1 through 4. The temple, Acts 5, 12, public auditoriums of schools, 19, 9, and in synagogues as long as they were permitted to do so. The place was not as important as the manner of meeting or for fellowship with one another and for worship of God. During the first century, two services were held on the first day of the week. That day was adopted as the day of worship, because it was the day on which Christ rose from the dead. Acts 20, verse 7, 1 Corinthians 16, verse 2, and Revelation 1, 10. The morning service most likely included the reading of Scripture, Colossians 3, 16, exhortation by the leading elder, prayers and singing, the love feast, 1 Corinthians 11, 20, and 22, or agape, agape me, preceded the communion during the evening service. But by the end of the first century, the love feast was generally dropped and the communion celebrated during the morning worship service. Pliny described the Christians to Trajan as those who met before daybreak, sang hymns, took vows to lead an ethical life. Information concerning the order of worship in the middle part of the second century is much more complete and is to be found in the first apology of Justin Martyr and the Didache. The service, which was held on the day, quote, day of the sun, end quote, started with reading of the memoirs of the apostles or, quote, the writings of the prophets, end quote, for a period of as long as time permits. An exhortation or homily based on the reading was then given by the president, quote-unquote, and the congregation then stood for prayer. The celebration of the Lord's Supper followed the kiss of peace. The elements of bread and water and wine were dedicated by thanksgiving and prayers to which the people responded by an amen. The deacons then distributed the elements to the homes of those unable to be present in the meeting, and they finally took up a collection for aid to widows and orphans, the sick, prisoners, and strangers. The meeting was then dismissed, and all the people made their way to their homes. The Lord's Supper and Baptism were two sacraments that the early church used because they <clears throat> pardon me, they had been instituted by Christ. Immersion seems to have been the widely practiced in the first century, but according to the Didache, baptism could be performed by pouring water over the head of the one being baptized, if no stream of running water or a large amount of water were available, only those who were baptized could partake in communion. Roman numeral three, the life of the church. The early church had no benevolent welfare state to give aid to the poor and sick. The church took the responsibility on itself. The money collected from those able to give in the offering following the celebration of the communion was dispensed to meet such needs. Paul also mentioned the practice of collecting gifts of the faithful each Sunday, 1 Corinthians 16, 1-2. The deacons would then use it to care for those who were in need. The women of the churches also aided to this charitable work by making clothes for those who needed them 
and so on and so forth. Acts chapter 9, verse 36 through 41. And the church did not attack the institution of slavery directly, nor was the ownership of slaves forbidden to Christians. However, Christianity soon undercut the institution of slavery by bidding the Christian master and slave to remember that they were the brother brother Christians. Paul's tactful letter to Philemon, then the leader of the church in Colossae, leaves one with the impression that Philemon, as a sincere Christian, would most likely give Onesimus his freedom. The early church insisted on separation from the pagan practices of Roman society, but it did not insist on separation from pagan neighbors and harmless social relationships. In fact, Paul, by inference, made provision for such social mingling as long as it did not involve the compromise or or sacrifice of Christian principles, 1 Corinthians 5.10 and 10.20-33. He did, however, urge complete separation from any practice that might be related to idolatry or pagan immorality. The Christian should follow the principles of doing nothing that would harm the body of Christ owned, the body that Christ owned, 1 Corinthians 6.12, of doing nothing that would keep people from coming to Christ or lead other weak Christians astray, 1 Corinthians 8.13 and 10.24, and avoiding and of avoiding all that would, be, that would not bring glory to God, 1 Corinthians 6.20 and 10.31. These principles precluded attendance to the pagan theaters, stadiums, games, and, or temples. Despite this attitude of moral and spiritual separation, the Christians were willing and were even urged by Paul to fulfill their civic obligation of obedience to the to and respect for civil authority, payment of taxes, and prayers for those in authority, Romans 13, 7, 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. They made excellent citizens, so long as they were not asked to violate their precepts of God, the higher authority to whom their primary allegiance was due. The early church included poor and lower middle class as, and small numbers of the rich and noble groups. It was strongest in the cities and extended from Spain to India. The purity of life, love, and courage of the early church is standing and dying for principle made such an impact on the pagan society of imperial Rome that it was only three centuries after the death of Christ that Constantine gave official recognition to the importance of Christianity in the state by calling and presiding over the Council of Nicaea.